0: Hello, and welcome back to the Video Essay Podcast. I'm Emily Coe, the Associate Producer. And in this episode, we are featuring Alan O'Leary. We had such a wonderful and fascinating conversation with him. We talk about his origin story, the Ulipian resonances within his work and process, more experimental and perhaps more vulnerable approaches to scholarship, and a whole lot more. Later on, we also discuss an excellent video essay by Kathleen Luke. As always, you can learn more about the podcast at TheVideoEssay.com, subscribe to our free newsletter, Notes on Videographic Criticism, at TheVideoEssay.Substack.com, and please consider subscribing to The Video Essay Podcast on YouTube. Without further ado, let's get into the conversation.
1: And now we are so pleased to be joined by the one, the only <laughs> Alan O'Leary, a scholar, video essayist, professor at uh, Aarhus University, organizer, and we'll talk about this later of some some fantastic video essay events that have um, occurred online in the recent years. Um, and someone who I've gotten to know, and we've been talking, we got to do a podcast, got to do a podcast conversation. So, so thrilled to finally be here with you, Alan. Welcome, uh, Welcome to the show.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Thanks a lot, Will. And nice to meet you, Emily. It's, It's great to have the opportunity to talk to you both.
1: First question, obvious one, what is your, your origin story? What first introduced you to, to videographic criticism? What got you interested in creating video essays? And then were there any people, videos, things that were kind of key in generating this interest?
2: I mean, in terms of my origin story, um, my short answer is the same as the short answer that many of your guests have given, which is that I was lucky enough to get onto the Middlebury Scholarship and Sound and Image Workshop, so video camp. I was there in 2018, which I think was a very privileged year for us as students, because not only did we have Jason Mattel and Chris Keithley and Katie Grant, of course, but we also had uh, Kevin B. Lee and Alison Dufresne were there as visiting mentors so if you like those three katie allison and kevin as guest lecturers or guest teachers at the um, at middlebury represent different kind of dispositions towards the making of video essays so it was great to have that diversity of approach and the different modes of video essays that they they compose in their own work so that was that was a really lovely experience and i think it generated uh wonderful conversations and even debates, actually, among the cohort. And that was where I met people who have become great friends, like Kathleen Luke, who we'll talk about later, and Maria Hoffman, and many others. And uh, in fact, we've kind of continued some of the cohort from 2018 Middlebury as a group called IVERN. So I'm going to try and remember what that stands for. It's the International Video Essay Research Network. And we've actually been working on um, a communal video essay that we hope to submit for publication shortly. In kind of deep time, I would say my interest in this form was born in my training as an artist. So before I became an academic, I actually worked as an artist, artist and a stage designer. And I was very interested always in the relationship of image and text. In fact, when I was uh, working as an artist, I used to work on photocopiers. And we're talking now about, you know, the 20th century. So color copiers were very much in their infancy and prohibitively expensive. So we used to use photocopiers where every time you wanted a different color, you had to replace the ink cartridge and then put a sheet of paper through again. What this meant was that I had to think in layers if I was making uh, images with multiple colors. And I think the timeline and tracks on the timeline feels very much like a similar uh, way of composing at least images and also in its own way, sound. So when I came to work, as I did for the first time when I was in Middlebury in 2018 with editing software, they used Premiere Pro there, it somehow felt very familiar. And it was also a return to a way of working then that that preceded my academic work, but that had always informed it. You know, as an artist, I was, or someone who had been trained as an artist, I was very attentive to certain aspects of, you know, f- film uh, and of the audiovisual experience. So that will be the the deep time answer.
1: I love that answer because it highlights the kind of mechanical aspect of what we do in terms of thinking about the technology that we're using and how it is structured and laid out, and how that might influence the art that is produced as a result of it
2: yeah that's absolutely right i mean it's a it's a theme we might return to later in the conversation but musicians in particular who make electronic music will often talk about the affordances of particular softwares in terms of what they generate as music there's a there's a wonderful book called the oxford companion to algorithmic music which has great material on this and and i think you know katie grant I think even actually in, in the interview that she did with you that inaugurated the podcast talked about how she prefers to use, is it Final Cut rather than Premiere, because it has different affordances. And affordances are in a software or in, a, in a, as you say, a, a mechanism that you use for making are about what's permitted, but also how, how your work is constrained. So the work itself has a particular personality and character that derives from the Means that you're using, particularly if we we think of the work that we're as we're do that we're doing as a kind of material thinking, which Katie I think has taught us to do. Uh, so I think that's a a, a really good observation. Well, you you asked me also about uh, whether there was any particular video essays that had informed me, in the, the answer is kind of no. I think I hadn't seen any before I went. No, I mean, lying if I say I hadn't seen any before I went to Middlebury because we'd all seen some, but they hadn't necessarily impacted on me. Apart from one, maybe there was, um, I was working with a scholar called Austin Fisher, who was an expert on genre cinema. And he had done a nice uh, video essay called Spaghetti's in Translation in one of the early in transitions. It was an adaptation of someone else's academic article. But it took very much an associative editing approach rather than a voice over argumentative approach. And I, I remember finding it very striking when Austin uh, presented it at an event in Leeds where I used to work. Um, so that was probably the one that I had seen and had as a point of reference when I got to Middlebury, I think, yeah. But I, otherwise, I think I came to it fresh.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's great to hear more about your origin story in relation to videographic criticism, but we're also interested in your scholarly work that preceded your interest in video essays, how do you think that has influenced your work today
2: yeah that's a a good question actually, because I was probably as an academic a little bit of a frustrated artist <laughs> having having initially trained as that and having failed to make a living at it, as you know is often the case, but always having had you know the, the kind of art I was interested in was was political, it it tended to be kind of intellectual in its orientation. So it had a kind of a scholarly dimension anyway. So in my academic work, it was initially very traditional. I did my PhD on Italian cinema, and it was on the representation of terrorism in Italian cinema, particularly the intranational terrorism of the 1970s in Italy. And then I went on to work on Italian genre cinema. And actually here is where I would pick a moment that feeds into the videographic work. I did a book, a long study, and then um, a book on um, a genre of films called "The Cini Panettoni," that translates as "film Christmas cakes." And these were films that were released for, you know a, a certain period in Italy around Christmas, that were coarse choral comedies, often enormously successful and sometimes the most successful film of the year in Italy but they were culturally despised. So no one had studied them from a scholarly perspective. You know, most of the criticism was simply dismissive. or oh, these are a national embarrassment and so on. So they were being watched by an enormous number of people, but then being ignored uh, from the point of view of scholarly analysis. So I did my book and I thought, how do I do, do justice to the status of these films in Italian culture? In other words, I can just say what I think about them. And of course, I did that in the sense that I had done my research project and I reported my results and, um, you know, did formal analysis of the films, did a kind of a cultural studies account of them uh, and so on. But the second half of my book, I turned over to other people. So I thought the interesting things about or one of the really interesting things about these films is the pleasure and simultaneously the odium that they generate. So how would I encapsulate this ambivalent status of the films in formal terms? So what I did was I I did all these interviews with people about the films, actors who were in them, directors who made them, producers, but then also critics and then fans, and then also people who really didn't like the films. So I turned over the second half of the book to this dialogue about the films, which I didn't resolve. And the film ends with one of the critics asking, me but also by implication of the reader of the book but do you like these films and that's how the book ends so what what i was trying to do there was to have a form that did justice to the status of the films and allowed the reader of the book to themselves ask themselves the questions i was asking and to come to their own conclusions rather than me offering those conclusions and telling them what to think i think that approach to let's call it scholarship informed my approach to the video essay, which, um, as Kevin B. Lee has, has described it, borrowing a term from Goddard, is if it's a form that thinks, we have to ask ourselves, in what way does it think? Or does it allow thought? So as this dialogue in my book was intended to facilitate, I, I think of the video essay, too, as a, a a mode which can facilitate thinking rather than tell you as a viewer what to think so i think that really fed into it apart from that of course there's the uh, battle of algiers uh, book which i subsequently did which we'll perhaps talk about later because it relates to my first published video essay
1: that video is how i first encountered your videographic work which was published in in transition um, occupying time the battle of algiers and obviously has this relationship with a written, <laughs> written text. And so could you just very generally describe what it was like to engage with a film, a, a canonical film in, in this way, um, and in two very different ways, and how each informed the other? I, I think the video was published before the book was finalized. Is that correct? Am I getting the timeline there?
2: The video came out in transition in 2019. The book also came out in 2019, but the the video certainly was finished by maybe October 2018. And in fact, it was developed initially at Middlebury, under Katie Grant's mentorship. By the end of the two weeks at Middlebury, I had a, a kind of a first draft. There was a whole chunk of it not there. In effect, it was it was adumbrated, there was a kind of a sketch of the thing that I then filled in at the end of the Middlebury period. So it was developed through the exercises that so many people have discussed on your podcast, which is the Middlebury parametric exercises. So, you know, the Pecha Kucha, and then the voiceover exercise, then the epigraphic exercise. And then they also had us make, at the end of week one, a a trailer for the film we would be working on subsequently. And um, Katie Grant looked at the trailer I had done and said, well, you know, just use that, just fill it in. <laughs> and um, and I hadn't thought of doing that at all, but I, she was absolutely right. She spotted kind of a potential in the uh, material that I had managed to develop at that point, which uh, which I then continued with. But the relationship to the book was complex in that I decided to work on the Battle of Algiers at Middlebury as my kind of key text. And just for those who don't know, it's, um, it's a very influential 1966 film about events in Algeria between uh, roughly 1954 and 1960, which is the Algerian revolution that ultimately led to independence from France. It's a, it's a kind of classic of post-colonial, anti-colonial filmmaking and a constant point of reference in discussions of political cinema. It also does something very interesting. With time, its attitude to temporalities is is very complex, and that was the topic of the fourth chapter of my book on the film. So I did a short book on the film, and it was a chapter that was causing me enormous grief. I mean, it was very difficult to write, and when I go back and reread it now, I'm still not sure I understand my argument in that fourth chapter. You know, it's it's slightly eluded me. It was slightly beyond my uh, writerly or scholarly capacities to to elucidate what I was trying to get at. But I thought working on the film in this way, or on the in a videographic way, might help me with that, which it definitely did. And what it did really was allowed me to translate some of my, at least, straightforward listing of the temporalities that the film evinces, you know, the, the temporalities that the film deploys or discusses, translate them into this videographic form retaining the kind of list format the video essay has these title cards that name the different temporalities that are introduced so things like um, history chronology and eventually revolution but it doesn't offer a hierarchy it's simply a list uh so what you get is a, is this kind of taxonomy that pretends but but isn't comprehensive and just leaves it there so it isn't a standard argumentative a video essay and it doesn't feel feature voiceover, at least not my voiceover. And it was quite helpful, if you like, for clarifying some of my thinking. And I think of it as sort of an adaptation of the book or a a small part of the book that I did on the Battle of Algiers, but also a complementary piece.
0: Yeah, I, I find it interesting. I feel like conceptualizing videographic criticism as a method to sort of think through film, or it, it sort of entails formal experimentation, and I feel like this connects to the title uh, "Uskulp Po," which uh, obviously has its connection to Ulipo. Could you talk a little bit more about that?
2: "Uskulp refers to Ulipo. Ulipo were uh, still are; they're still in existence. A group of initially writers founded in France, in Paris, in the nineteen sixties. Who wanted to investigate constraint-based or what we would call in our world parametric approaches to writing? They featured, you know, very famous writers like Italo Calvino, the Italian writer, uh, Georges Perec, Raymond Cuneau, and various others. But Ulipo, which stands in the French for "ouvrage de littérature potentielle," which means "workshop of potential literature," they they issued this kind of call for other forms or mediums to adopt themselves parametric or constraint-based processes, and then to adapt the letter- literature bit of the workshop of potential literature to whatever the other uh, form might be. So I have this notion that we work parametrically, and I'm very interested in parametric work in videographic scholarship. Uh, so I thought, well, why don't we have workshop of potential scholarship or ooh, skal, po?
0: Going off of that, you published workshop of potential scholarship, manifesto for parametric videographic criticism. Could you please share with us the origins of this piece? What prompted you to write out a manifesto?
2: Yeah, so it has a kind of a double origin, I would say. Um, one is simply that I, I was really taken at Middlebury with the parametric approach to, in in this case, the kind of pedagogy of videographic criticism. So, you know, Jason and Chris used parametric, uh, as we well, as everyone knows now in the, um, uh, those who follow the kind of discourse and themselves produce videographic criticism and video essays, they know that these uh, famous um, uh, exercises Uh, have been used to teach videographic criticism, but then have also been used to make video essays that have ended up being published and so on. So I was taken with this, and I thought, well, is this stuff just for teaching you how to do it, and as it were, for taking away the anxiety that many scholars will feel when they have to move into a kind of a creative realm, or to engage in material thinking as well as prose writing? Or can it be seen as having let's say, uh, some sort of, I, want, I don't want to say deeper meaning. I think what I mean is a more <laughs> uh, broader application. And so I wanted to investigate it myself. I found it extremely congenial because the kind of art that I like, people like Donald Judd, for example, the minimalist sculptor, or again, writers like Italo Calvino, or even going back to modernist literature, people like James Joyce have al- always deployed these parametric or permutational or constraint based procedures and indeed if you think of something like poetry obviously poetry in meter is a constraint based um, form of composition so i thought how can we theorize this in relation to our field so that's what i was trying to do so i wanted to make a manifesto because i know that some people are a little bit suspicious of it or at least they're suspicious they're, they're happy enough with you using parametric procedure as part of the process but not necessarily as part of the output so a video, graph, a video essay that might take parametric form in its published, or let's say at least um, finished form, uh, might be seen as not appropriately scholarly. So I thought, well, actually, I want to argue against that. I want to say why we should take it seriously as a mode of development of work, but also a mode of as were, output of the work. Now... The form of the piece itself, in other words, this uh, this article workshop of potential scholarship, as you say, is called a manifesto for a parametric videographic criticism, which came out in Nexus two years ago now. Had a different, you know, there there was my ideal or my intention rather of arguing the case for parametric work, but then I also wanted to do something that was itself at least somewhat parametric in how I composed the piece. So initially, I had done um, a 500-word manifesto in these 50-word chunks, so a very simple constraint-based piece of writing, which I submitted to uh, the cinephile special issue on the scholarly video essay. But Alison Dufresne and Tracy Cox-Stanton, who were editing that, didn't think it was appropriate because it didn't, explicitly uh, define scholarship. And I think that was fair enough. I think it wasn't the right uh, venue for the uh, for the piece. But I thought, well, I've got this 500 word chunk of writing that I spent a long time at. I'm quite proud of it. What am I going to do with it? No one else is going to publish it. I had done 500 words because that was the little um, position statements that they were inviting for the cinephiles issue. But then where else would I put 500 words unless it was as a blog post or something like that? So what I did was I kind of reverse engineered then the article. I actually used that as my plan and then had to write the article that those 500 words outlined. And that was extremely difficult <laughs> uh, because they weren't written as a plan for an article. But it was quite a useful experience because it was very Ullipian. I mean, it, it was very like what the Ulippo would do as a kind of exercise. Uh, they would come up with some arbitrary idea and then it became about the hard work of making that idea uh into a body of prose in other words of of somehow generating from the initial structure uh, a work of the requisite form and length so what you have there is is an article that is in itself is is in a sense kind of um an awkward read for me. And actually, I couldn't bring myself to reread it for this interview because it's, in a sense, pushing me to places that I wouldn't otherwise have been willing to go. But the initial map of the article meant that I had to go to those places and to write things that I might even be a little bit uncomfortable about saying I agree with today.
1: Well, that, that reminds me of the, the word, the function of the word workshop in, in the title of the piece, right? It kind of hints to this kind of ongoing nature of of your thinking was that kind of your your intention
2: for it yes i think that's right it's process um and as you say ongoing so you're never reaching an end point it's not that i have arrived at my position and now i can stick my flag there and and say that you know that is the end point i think it's a register of work also whereby you try and push a thought to as far as you are able to push it, perhaps even beyond that point where you're sure that of that thought, or where you might uh, be persuaded by that thought, but that the thought itself is doing the dictation of what, um, what you have to say. Thinking of uh, that thought, if you like, as having its own agency and you being a servant of that. So when I had this 500-word P- piece, which is pr- reprinted in the article at the end, Uh, whereas actually it should probably go at the beginning because it was what generated the piece. That was then dictating to me, you know, where I should go. And it's a point of arrival, but it's only a point of arrival in the sense of arriving at a train station where you then have to switch trains and get another one, you know. It it represents a a, a stage in my thinking, which I've been trying to take forward with other work then, like the one, the video essay we might discuss a bit later, um, nebular epistemics and so on.
1: Well, I was going to say, there's an obvious kinship between the two and the body of prose. That word stuck in my head because we, in your video, we get your actual body um, (laughs) rather than that. So so we'll definitely circle back to this in a minute. Pivoting a little, you've helped organize a lot of online and now in-person events, screenings, discussions related to videographic criticism, interrogating the modes of videographic criticism with Marie and kathleen who we mentioned earlier i think sometimes the philosophy of those <laughs> events and and how they are formed gets maybe lost in the weeds by the amazing things that happens there so I, I i'd be eager to hear from you what you see as the kind of the the importance of such such gatherings and your philosophy as as an organizer or, or a programmer of this like what
2: What is the function that you see them serving? There are several functions. I think you're right to talk about a philosophy because, or at least, you know, a set of reasons for spending a lot of time, which is very scarce in the academic world, uh, and organizing these things. You know, it takes a lot of energy. One of the reasons was, and this is a kind of an ethics, that when I applied to study at Middlebury, one of the things they asked was that, you would communicate what you learn to others after the workshop so you know i have kind of felt that it was part of my it was it was my privilege and my opportunity to study at middlebury i need to then do things to make that happen for other people or at least to allow for situations where others can have the chance to learn and discuss so that was one reason secondly and this is something that me and kathleen and maria Uh, Hoffman discussed a lot when we were organizing the Interrogating the Modes of Videographic Criticism, the online event that happened in February 2022, is that we really wanted to involve people who were at at different stages of their career. So we had some very senior people, but we also had people who were doing PhDs. We also had people who were, just as you've done with the podcast, you know, non-academic or freelance artists, uh, involved so we wanted to to treat everyone as having an equal input and an equal authority to to engage in the description of the work and in the debate about it so those things were both very important the third thing and this i'm not speaking now for for maria and kathleen when i said this but certainly in my own if you want to call it philosophy of organization of things like this is that and i'm going to start in a slightly uncomfortable place right <laughs> because one of the things you have often talked about will especially in the uh in to work on the podcast and your intentions with the podcast is the creation and cultivation of community and i'm very suspicious of the idea of community and i'll try and explain why apparently this is kind of social biographical i mean i grew up in Catholic Ireland, where the idea of community was used as a kind of stick to beat people who were in any way different. And it was also a, a kind of fig leaf over all sorts of violence, um, you know, abuse of various sorts, whether it was institutional uh, or just out there in, in in the streets. But it was really a way of denying difference and of erasing difference. And of course, Ireland has become a very different place in the in the years since uh, in a way that I feel as an Irish person amazed by and kind of very proud of. But I still wouldn't like to go back and speak about community. I think what I'm very much more interested in as a metaphor for the group of people who are concerned with video essays, videographic criticism, is to think of us more as a society or even as an agonistic society. Now, what I mean by this is that We have competing priorities. Not everyone agrees about what work we should be doing. We can actually admit that there are competing priorities and actually debate those in an explicit way. And that's what I think I like these uh, events to facilitate. You know, a proper debate about our values and what's at stake, rather than pretending that we're all the same and that we have all the same interests, because we don't, I think.
1: I think it's a totally fair point, and I think... One thing you point to came up during a conference in Germany that we were both at was this idea wanting to stop what we sometimes do and something that I often do of uh, isn't it so great what we're doing, how great we are, blah, 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 like that kind of thing and to kind of really be self-reflective in a way that is most productive because that's ultimately what's best for Everyone else, and it's it's important to be very excited about kind of the trajectory where we're going. Um, but I think that is what was one of the great things uh, about that event, um, maybe <laughs> uh, communicated by the word interrogating <laughs> uh, in the title. But no, I th- I think it's um it's an important distinction, and I'm wondering, do you have? So I know that you have some. You're doing a lot of exciting things at Arhu's. What, what do you see kind of so kind of in that spirit, you know, what function do you hope to play or what role do you hope to have going forward? And because Aarhus is facilitating a lot of really exciting, really exciting stuff.
2: So uh, Aarhus has, the, the department where I am, has this tradition of um, short film production. And that has been, for a long time, been about fiction film. But I think the reason I got the job at Aarhus was to think about teaching something that was much more academic-creative hybrid. I think of it as the creative-critical, in in a kind of hyphenated term. So creative-critical short filmmaking, which draws, if you like, on the essay film tradition, which right back from when it was first theorized, which is... You know, I suppose you could say people like Ziegavartov, but also then Hans Richter, who wrote the the great, when he names the essay film or the film essay back in 1940 in this short little essay, he talks about it as a new mode of the documentary film, which can make use of all of the resources of cinema, including explicit fictionalization. And that is, you know, an enormous permission for us as video essayists, I think. It's like a genuinely exciting piece of writing to reread now. And that's what I teach at Aarhus now. So I teach short film production as well as standard kind of film history. And we're very interested in things like process-based filmmaking. So I forbid my students to write scripts, for example. Instead, they have to undertake tasks that generate a film from which a film emerges. Rather than saying, okay, here's the film I plan to make. I'm not going to make it. Oh, there it is. It's made. They have to engage in a process that instead uh, comes up with something that surprises them as much as everyone else around them. And this, of course, explains my, my interest in a film that we might come to talk about later, The Five Obstructions by uh, Lars von Trier and Jarnett, uh, which is a film about uh, a kind of task-based approach to, to filmmaking. So the work at Aarhus, then, is one of those happy occasions where my research, my interest in process, my interest in experimental approaches to the video essay and in uh, parametric approaches to videographic criticism uh, can also be expressed through pedagogical experimentation uh, with the students. And uh, the institution appreciates that. You know, it, it, it lends a sense of excitement for the students. And I should mention that we have Katie Grant as an honorary uh, visiting professor. So she comes every so often to to help us out and to teach students and also to teach uh, other members of staff, colleagues about uh, uh, videographic criticism. So it's very exciting to have that association with her.
0: At this point, we want to transition over to talking about one of your video essays, uh, Nebular Epistemics, a Glossary, Scholarship Like a Spider or I Love the title. Um, so in this video, you sort of start off with a comment from Drew Morton uh, about In Transition's peer review process. And so that's part of what inspires this video, or at least what initiates the video. Could you please provide more detail about the origin.
2: Part of the reason for the existence of that video essay is that I am actually in the process of proposing to Jason Mattel for his Lever Press series of videographic books, a videographic book called The Poetics of Videographic Criticism. So the the nebular epistemics grows out of the Hanover Conference back in November 2022. And what I did was I I did a kind of quasi-performative presentation, which Will uh, witnessed at the time. And I also witnessed other performative presentations at the event. For example, Ariel Avizar did this wonderful thing where he did a presentation in which he invented a quotation that he then based his argument upon only to re- reveal at the end of his paper that he had based the whole argument on a fiction or on a quotation that he had invented. It was a lovely moment. Um, so I thought, oh, there's something in this. You know, There's plenty of moment here. Maria Hoffman also did something that was very performative, as did um, Juan Rodriguez, Juan Lamas Rod- Rodriguez, even though his was a recorded presentation. It still had a performative element in it. Um, and and I thought, Ooh, there's something in this. So rather than just say, oh, well, that presentation was what I did at Hanover, I thought I would work it up. And it was also an opportunity to use, to take on ideas that I had been introduced to by people like Johannes Binotto in his work on embodiment, but also my partner, Marie Halliger-Anderson, who's um, a filmmaker and dance artist. And she does, if you saw her work, you would say, oh, that's a life like, like Binot- uh, uh, Johannes's. Work and she does a lot of work where she engages with screens, so her body is in front of the screen and stuff. So, so I wanted to bring that stuff into my work, and this was an opportunity to do so. So then I happened to attend this SCMS Digital Humanities and Videographic Criticism SIG workshop on publishing videographic criticism, where Drew Martin did a presentation on in transitions peer review um, process, as you mentioned, and he he says. He says, Oh, one of the forms that we're at a desk level we were a bit suspicious about is the illustrated lecture, you know, as if someone is just standing in front of their PowerPoint and 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 I thought, okay, that's a challenge. You know, um, I'm actually going to do something that is basically an illustrated lecture, but make it formally interesting and make it um, fun, intellectually fun to watch and dynamic. And it was also, of course, that my own work is normally absolutely different to that. I mean, certainly my favorite of my own pieces is a piece called No Voiding Time, which is a deformative analysis, I suppose you would say, or kind of compression of uh, inherent vice by Paul Thomas Anderson from 2014, I think. And that's highly abstract. It's it's a you know a very experimental. There's no argument in it and so on. So it's exactly the the kind of thing that in transition is also suspicious about, which doesn't make its academic or scholarly uh, argument or credentials obvious within the film itself. It's a very abstract piece. I mean, the other thing to say about putting Drew... So I, I take, take this clip of Drew from the uh, SCMS event and put it at the beginning of the film to kind of stage. I, I as want, I want the viewer to be alert to what I'm up to formally. So it really helps uh, in order to as a kind of epigraph, an audiovisual epigraph to the, the rest of the material. It's also nice, I have to say, to have Drew there, because I don't know about, I've never met Drew in person, but he's extremely courteous and uh, a lovely person to deal with by email, uh, always when I've kind of encountered him. So I wanted him to be the kind of presiding deity of the uh, of the film. The next person who's quoted in it is Adorno, uh, who I always imagine as this, you know, Theodore Adorno, as this great curmudgeon. So I thought, well, we'll start with someone who's very pleasant, like Drew Morton, and then we'll have Adorno as So they're the, the two kind of presiding household gods of that particular video, i say. Uh, what I wanted to do was to make what I thought of as a kind of modernist scholarship. Now, what I mean by that is that one of the innovations of modernist literature was the introduction of the unreliable narrator, whereby you as a reader are introduced to the events of, uh, let's say, a novel... Uh, through someone who you realize at a certain point can't be trusted, whether through because they're ignorant or whether they're because they're actually actively misleading you. Um, And I thought, what would it mean to have, as Ariel Lavizar performed at the Hanover event, uh, a scholar who was unreliable? What does it mean to to have reason to doubt the sincerity of the the person who's uh, presenting you the material? I mean, to what extent does scholarship as a mode rely on or conviction that the scholar themselves is sincere about what they're telling you? And I thought, well, what would it mean to to quiz that or to give material for um, doubting that sincerity? It's sort of a
1: next level thing, because I think the another critique of that's often levied against folks is that, you know, it's not scholarly to, to, to be a, uh, a fan, for example, or to profess your, your love for something or to bring in the personal aspect to it. So this is just pulling, <laughs> taking it kind of to a whole nother level in, in thinking about mode. And an essential aspect of how the tone is presented is when you are in the car, with I I believe that's your partner um Maria there. And so just in a, on a very nuts and bolts level walk us through how that came to be and how it was staged and then re-edited for the film and kind of its 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 function as you see it in the piece. Uh,
2: my partner Marie is herself a filmmaker and a dancer, I don't know, don't worry um, uh, she and you know we talk about our work a lot as you can imagine. So Part of what I intended to do, and you just sort of gestured toward us in your comment just before you asked that question there, is bringing in the personal into scholarship or bringing in those parts of the preparation for the work that are normally excluded from the final work. And in this case, I wanted to bring in some of that invisible preparatory labor that is normally at least invisible in uh, academic work. And in this case, that labor is shared because I'm in a household where I have the good fortune to be able to talk to my partner about my work and get very, you know, intelligent and uh, astute uh, uh, commentary on that work. Now, normally you would say, you would you would put it in an acknowledgement, wouldn't you? Say, oh, and thank you to X. But I wanted to actually build it into the texture of the film. Um, so what you get are recordings just done with a, a, a you know, a GoPro stuck on the dashboard the uh, of the, um, the or or little car uh we go on a cup we we share a car ride a couple of times a week uh to go into or for work um so i was telling marie before i did the hanover presentation about my ideas for the presentation and i was just recording the conversations because i thought something might come up you know we might say something that will be interesting who knows so I was recording it on my phone, but I was also recording it on the GoPro. I thought one of these will work best in terms of the audio. And then I thought, actually, no, I want to keep these in. I want to actually build them into the initially the performative presentation and then into the final piece. Also, because the way that the GoPro framed the images could refer to a key point of reference that I allude to in the um, in nebular epistemics, which is the Stargate sequence in uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey. So you get that moment where the, the astronaut is propelled through this abstract landscape, and then every so often you get these uh, stills of his face in this kind of uh, uh, disorientation, beautiful uh, color- beautifully colored images. So I thought, well, maybe I can enact the idea of being lost in this fog, this nebular epistemics, by uh, alluding to this the, to these images, this uh, you know, f- classic film history uh, point of reference of the astronaut being propelled through, um, through the Stargate in 2001. So it's there for that sort of reason. And I also want to say that it, it's also intended to foreground my own vulnerability as a scholar, as a thinker, Um, One of the things we have to do when we do scholarship is, you know, we learn to do this as you're now learning (laughs) in your master's, Emily, and you in your PhD uh, uh, will, uh, to perform your authority so that people trust you and trust that you have the authority to make the claims that you're making and to perform the analysis that you're performing and reach the conclusions that you do. And this means often disguising your own vulnerability. But I wanted to keep in the first thoughts you know me clumsily groping towards the beginnings of an idea and uh, and keep that in as again that perhaps disavowed part of the academic labor that goes into the production of what is normally very polished or what is like ideally uh polished work or typically what you're aiming for is to make polished work so this is there's at least parts of this video essay then that are extremely unpolished at least in terms of the uh, both the the quality of the thought, but also also the audio audio quality too, as well. I very deliberately constructed a persona who 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 was an exaggerated version of me. I kind of I suppose dialed the, you know, uh, John Updike has this great phrase where he talks about celebrity as a mask that eats into the face, and I often think that um, being a teacher is a bit like that. As as you go on over many years, a, a teacher and, let's say, a scholar who presents in these uh, pub- public environments like, scholar, uh, like uh, conferences and so on, you become a version of yourself that is increasingly distant from the person you once were, but, uh, but is also increasingly taking over the person you once were in a way that you don't necessarily like. You have to kind of exaggerate yourself uh, in that sort of situation. Otherwise, you end up being a boring teacher or a boring presenter. So I was I was turning that up to 11 there, you know, to use the spinal tap <laughs> measure. Dressing a little bit like what I do, but again, a little bit more like what I do. I would never wear a turtleneck, for example. So it, I was constructing a persona who was a version of me, but an exaggerated version of me and one who um, I slightly object to. I don't like that persona in that video. Um, but I was trying to learn from the lessons of someone like Chloe galibert in her, uh, watching the pain of others film where she very much, very deliberately constructs a persona and then challenges it towards the end. Kevin Lee, Kevin Lee actually at Middlebury when, um, he was introducing his work when I was there in 2018. He showed a clip of a presentation he did in which he at, at a certain point jumped on the table and then jumped into the screen. And I, it, it always it just really stayed with me as a kind of a, an amazingly vivid moment that it must have been for the people in that room where he broke the rules uh, but was performing. You know, he was projecting a version of himself. And so that's what I wanted to do there. Uh, then the other point of reference, of course, is um, Swimming to Cambodia, the Jonathan Demme film, which is a recording or a stage, a recording of a staging of uh, the monologue by Spalding Gray. Um, so I, I saw this film many years ago and it stayed with me as like a super sophisticated, very engrossing, uh, piece of performance. And I thought I want to do something like that at some point. Um, and I should say, I signal this allusion to Swimming to Cambodia with the music, the theme music in the film, which is, um, in Nebular Epistemics, which is taken from the score for Swimming to Cambodia by Laurie Anderson.
0: That's great. Um, I love how you talk about this balance between the performative dimension, but also showcasing the process that you actually went through. Um, But we're wondering if you could talk a little bit more about this idea that we should be keeping failure diaries.
2: Yeah. So this is something that we talk about in the car, uh, one of the car scenes, me and Marie. This is to do with treating the work that we do as videographic critics precisely as experimental. And if if you're doing experiments, it means you can't be sure of the results. But if that's true, then you also need to be able to recognize when you're successful with the experiments. And in a way, the only way to do that is to note your failures. But failures then become an essential part of the process. If you're afraid not to be successful, that means you're afraid to experiment. That means you, you only ever reproduce what you already know. So a failure diary is something that would actually be very interesting for other researchers to see how you got to that point where you felt you were successful. When I, 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 I shared the film Nebular Epistemics with Drew Martin to get his permission to use the clip of him, and he said he used to do this. He used to post everything on Vimeo every part of his process, but then Vimeo changed the, you know, the the uh, subscription system, which made it impossible to do this now because there, you have to pay too much money to get all the space and all the rest of it. But I think at some point, you know, there'll be PhD students or researchers who will be looking at the work of someone like Katie Grant in as much as, you know, her timelines have been... Um, frame grabbed to screen grabbed to see how she got to where she got to with some of the work that she did you know what were the things that she rejected and knowing what someone you know a practitioner as skilled and as uh you know achieved in in the quality of her work as katie grant knowing what they tried out only then to reject in order to got, get to what they then kept that would be extremely interesting for understanding or kind of criteria of value, but also our sense of what was important at a given historical period you know
0: so it ends with a videographic yodel <laughs> as well um, with dancing, so just please share anything about um, about this
2: <laughs> i mean it's certainly a moment of climax that replaces or that That performs the function of while refusing to perform the function of a standard academic conclusion, you know, where you summarize what went before. It's a culmination of certain formal strands in the rest of the video, and it gives you the feeling that it's been tied up in a certain way, but without actually resolving what has been preceded, preceding it. Uh, So, I mean, just to describe it, what you have there is. On the the soundtrack, a song by Fabrizio De André, who's a a very important Italian singer-songwriter. In this case, he does this kind of mock operatic song, uh, which ends with this kind of satirical yodel. So I kept the yodel. And uh, I mean, it's really extraordinarily technically achieved. I'm sure yodeling, it's rather uh, wonderful to listen to, but uh, also has a comic aspect to it. And at the same time, as you hear this on the soundtrack, Initially, you will get um, a definition of yodeling, which is partly invented, partly is taken from the dictionary, but partly invented. Uh, I talk about how yodeling is uh, designed or, or, or a technique for signaling location in foggy conditions. And obviously, this refers to the whole idea of nebular epistemics, you know, the, the fog. And then... You, you see on a screen a word cloud, so the, uh, there's a word cloud projected, and that word cloud is made out of, of uh, material from the video essay, so terms from the video essay, more or less. So you think words like parameters, philosophizing. Uh, and then on front of that is my partner, Marie, who is a dancer, as I say, dancing. Uh, I, my directorial instruction was to dance skeptically so the the idea was that she would um offer a kind of different discourse to the highly verbal highly analytical one that was being provided elsewhere and in a sense it's a kind of um it's a kind of fuck you to the the register of the rest i mean that's what it's intended uh, you know a a, a gentle Fuck you. But nonetheless, it's absolutely intended as such that uh, uh, she's performing in front of the screen. Of course, then I do all sorts of technical things with Premiere Pro and uh, Lumetri Color and all that to, in order to make it look like what it looks like. So instead of having a standard conclusion in which I would summarize and clarify my argument, I make the words that I was using into a cloud, which then refers to the theme of the, the video essay itself, Nebula Epistemics. And then I have Marie performing a skepticism towards the whole. And I agree with you, I think it, it works as a kind of culmination, if not a, as a conclusion of different strands throughout the video, because you will have noticed that there's other dancing going on uh, during the video, at least on the, the screen behind. Apparently this is taken from um, moments in the Five Obstructions, of course, or at least in the Perfect Human, which is the, the film that the Five Obstructions is, um, uh, riffs on. Uh, but then you see Marie dancing, and you also see at one point me dancing, even though I'm, that's merc- mercifully brief. But I thought it was important, again, to kind of reveal the uh, the vulnerability of the scholar forced outside their, in this case, comfort zone, which is behind a table lecturing.
1: Thank you very much for diving into the weeds there on the creation of that video. We could have um, a million more <laughs> uh, uh, questions to talk about Um and again, for everyone listening, it will be embedded at the video essay uh, dot com. So I hope you will either visit it or 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 revisit it again when we uh, will we will link to it. But now we get to the uh, a really fun part, which is the homework that we gave you, Alan, for us, which was to select a video essay that you wanted to to talk about. And we're actually kind of coming full circle a little bit because uh, Kathleen Luke has been uh, a recurring figure throughout this uh, conversation at, at varying points. So I'll uh, turn it over to you to kind of introduce the video and why you, why you selected
2: it. <laughs> so the, the video essay that I've chosen is uh, called Reproductive Futurism and the Politics of the Sequel. And it's by Kathleen Luke, who we have mentioned several times, who's my friend who's at uh, the University of Hanover and who I met actually in 2018 at Middlebury, and this video was begun there. And actually at the end of the two weeks in Middlebury, I think she presented the first minute and a half, two minutes of what has ended up being a 13-minute video. I think it's an extraordinarily well-achieved piece of work. It's just a kind of superlative example of videographic rhetoric which is really well paced. It does lovely things with a kind of a cold open, I suppose you would say. It does that thing. And actually, Drew Martin mentions this just to repeat another name that we've had several times. He does one of the... the, he reviews in In Transition for this particular video, i say, in which he talks about how it, it matches the aesthetic poetry of its source material. So it takes material from the original Blade Runner and then from Blade Runner 2049 and mimics, you deploys that really beautifully with these superimpositions, juxtapositions, wonderful varieties of multi-screen and moving frames and so on to kind of make its argument and perform its analysis. But it does that thing that Chris Keithley says about Koganada's What is Neorealism which is that it effectively poeticizes its explanatory elements. Uh, so I think it's just a, a really well-achieved piece of work. And I, I, I think, I think um, uh, Kathleen has just a wonderful sense of these things, you know? She makes a very complex argument, which I'll mention in a moment, because it's kind of important to what I want to say about it. But she does so at a pace that's very uh, calm, There's no sense of rush at all. And she's borrowing something of the kind of meditative, immersive experience of the Blade Runner films. Uh, And she uses the music from those films really well in order to underscore the placing of quotation on screen, for example. The music interacts with the voice really nicely. And I could go on about the different techniques that she uses, but I would just advise you know viewers or listeners to the podcast to take a look at the film itself uh, to 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 witness its sophistication really and it's its wonderful um, wonderfully effective rhetoric so all of this, however is to preface a kind of but so a kind of however in in what I want to say at Middlebury me and Kathleen, I suppose you would say we be, be began a discussion between ourselves. I mean, the discussion was already existing in the world at large, but inaugurated a discussion between ourselves about what form videographic criticism should take and the relative importance of argument and let's call it poetic elements or indeed more abstract elements. And um, I remember actually, we discussed earlier the my, my article, Workshop of Potential Scholarship. I remember when Kathleen read that, her response was extremely articulate. And uh, to summarize it, it was basically WTF. You know, what the hell are you on about, Alan? You know, what you're saying here about scholarship doesn't seem to be persuasive. It seems too far away from what it is we have been taught to do. And that I mean, obviously, as she feels what we should be doing. So she's adapting an article that I think she had already published on Blade Runner and the nature of it. You know what it means to make a sequel to a film that was not designed to have a sequel. The point about the original Blade Runner is that they're all going to die. Uh, But this the sequel has to somehow manufacture a future for these characters, or at least a kind of legacy. And in fact, she uses the term legacy quill, rather than sequel. So Kathleen does this lovely thing where she borrows theory from uh, queer theory from a, a commentator called Lee Edelman. Who has this notion of reproductive futurism, which he alludes to in the title of her video essay. What Lee Edelman does in his work is he, he talks about how the child, the figure of the child, figure in the sense of metaphor or symbolic, image, set of notions or uh, image is used to ratify by talking about our responsibility to the future, the kind of inequities are st- of the status quo. The figure of the child is used to exclude certain forms of life. So you can see it, for example, in Ron DeSantis' Don't Say Gay Bill, currently. The figure of the child there is used to be you know, just radically oppressive of forms of life, of saying that you cannot live like this if you're gay. Or if, you know, there's this hysteria currently about um, drag queen story time and this notion that uh, somehow our children are at risk if they're exposed to people who don't perform their gender in a cisgender way and all this sort of stuff. And this this uses the figure of the child as this vulnerable creature to whom we have res- responsibility in order to insist that the world must not, must not go a certain way. So it's a kind of responsibility to the future. And Kathleen uses this notion of reproductive futurism and the figure of the child to make a very sophisticated and I think persuasive argument about what Blade Runner twenty forty nine does with the figure of the child and with the idea of uh, reproductive futurism. So I really like it. I, I I think the argument is really powerful. I think it's very sophisticated rhetorically, and yet I'm very frustrated by the film. And in fact, something like Nebular Epistemics, uh, my own video essay, is designed to. Um, to challenge or to ironize the kind of authority that Kathleen performs in this film in, in, in reproductive futurism and the politics of the sequel. So she has her voiceover, which is beautifully done, beautifully paced. She uses her own voice, uh, so she uses her own German accent, but it doesn't admit of doubt. She disguises the kind of vulnerability that I wanted to foreground in something like Nebular Epistemics. She's performing herself, but in a way that, as it were, I think it faces the disconnection between, you know, the person of the scholar and the performance of the scholarship or the performance of the authority of the scholar. So I'm very suspicious of its sophisticated rhetoric, ultimately, even though I'm persuaded by its argument. I, I really wanted to have in there some semblance of doubt about its own argument, some sense that, you know, things might be otherwise. And I say this, this seems to me very important because, uh, ideally, Kathleen would be able to respond to this, but it's there's a sense in which this n- inadmission of doubt is a kind of a domestication of the queer theory that she's using. I mean, the point is, if you, if you read Lee, Lee Edelman, it's very funny, right? And I, I have to read you a quotation from uh, what he says. He says, at one point, he goes off into this kind of peroration, he says, Fuck the social order and the child in whose name we're collectively terrorized. Fuck Annie, meaning, you know, tomorrow, tomorrow, that, that Annie. Fuck the way, the way from Les Miserables. Fuck the poor innocent kid on the internet. And so on. Fuck the whole ne- network of symbolic relations and the future that serves as its prop. I mean, I find this stuff very amusing, but very hilarious. Uh, it's it's designed to be provocative, but also to entertain. Um, and it's also designed to, as it were, go beyond the point of being persuasive. It is intended to, as it were, provoke opposition. So, so I kind of feel that in the mode of this video essay, which is superlatively achieved, uh, incredibly sophisticated, it domesticates this the the grit or the challenge of the the kind of texture the rhetoric of the scholarship that it's that it's drawing on now as i say, i wish kathleen was here to to respond to this but uh, i i chose this video i said precisely because it is such a good example of a mode that i'm suspicious of and that i in my own work i want to ironize even as i admire it
1: well thank you for that i think this is a great example of uh that videographic society, right, that we talked about um, earlier. I think, yes, there's a lot at at, at play here. One thing that I'm, as we, as we make our way into everything that you've just said, and thank you again for that, I'm wondering what you make of, well, you, you mentioned a little bit in referring to Drew's um, comment in the peer review, I first saw this video essay when Kathleen screened it in fall of 2019 at an event that Katie Grant organized at Birkbeck. And I remember being struck and getting to see it on the big screen, um, which I think was a tremendous experience, given the fact that we're working with kind of these beautiful, rich images from a contemporary film, um, high resolution, and the like. And I think what it made me realize was that... um, I feel like up until that point, I had always thought um, that high resolution images like that somehow made the work of videographic criticism easier, or that they afforded a richness that you could just kind of more easily borrow um, to kind of capture the viewer. But I actually found that in watching this video that in a lot of ways, it was the opposite, that uh, you have to manipulate the image in such a way that maintains or 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 engages in some way with uh the materiality of the images that you're appropriating and I think this piece uh does that very well and I really appreciate the way in Kathleen how she deals with time and her willingness to kind of let clips play and to kind of let it to kind of let it breathe and to borrow, as you say, that that immersive quality and beauty in it that she then deconstructs in a scholarly, uh, very rich, or maybe rich isn't the right word, but it's, 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 uh, it's very sophisticated, I guess would be, uh, the argument. And I think we are very, uh, and maybe this is what you're suspicious of, we are welcomed into that uh, by way of her treatment of the images in letting us, letting us breathe and capturing their own
2: beauty, for lack of a better word. What she does extremely well is that she makes manifest the seduction of the films, uh, particularly, of you know, she's crit- critiquing in particular the second one, she allows us to feel the pleasures of those films in order then to take our distance from that pleasure. Uh, and I mean, that's an extremely powerful technique, and I think she she does it with great skill. But what I feel, if I were making the video, and I wouldn't, I mean, I should say that I'm really glad that this film exists, you know, that uh, uh, Kathleen's video essay exists, and in the form it does, and in the degree of achievement that it has uh, managed. But I want to resist precisely the seductions of this video essay in the way that she wants to resist the seductions of Blade Runner or Blade Runner 2049. She's allowing us an immersion. She's mimicking the aesthetic of the original in wonderfully powerful ways, allowing us to feel the seduction of those and the pleasures of those original films in order then that she can critique uh, those seductions and pleasures. And I think that's absolutely valid and I admire it and I aspire to doing something similar. But what's not deconstructed Or what's to use your the word you use there, Will, or what's not ultimately critiqued is her own kind of rhetorical appeal, her own the seductions of her own form.
1: Yeah. I'm gonna ask this, and I don't mean this in a leading a leading way. So let me preface by saying that. Does it need to acknowledge that in the sense that we know that, you know, as a video essayist, you are creating you're referring to it as a film, as a work of art that will then be interpreted and deconstructed, and uh, criticized in 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 this in a in a you know in a I don't I don't mean like in a negative way I mean like as you know a function as film criticism. So does Kathleen need to engage with that in the body of the video itself, or can that just be part of its own afterlife? In the same way that there's the seductive quality to the film,
2: I mean the answer is of course, of course she doesn't have to make it clear within the film it's it's, it's a choice and you know, the point is it is an adaptation of a particular form of academic discourse which then very uh, almost in a virtuoso way, deploys the resources of the videographic so but for me, what makes the videographic interesting, and I think Katie Grant talks about this too, is, is that it it may be an, I mean, I'm borrowing now a phrase of Katie's that I use in nebular epistemics, it may be an ontologically new scholarly form that then makes us reconsider the kind of priorities, standards, protocols of prose scholarship that we had grown to take for granted. So what I'm saying is that this film Uh, Kathleen's video essay, I mean, is absolutely perfectly achieved within its own terms, but I want to challenge those terms. So, of course, she shouldn't turn around and, and, uh, you know, deconstruct her own, the the seductiveness of her own argumentative and rhetorical uh, procedures, because that's not the sort of work that she's doing. But I... Think it's important for those of us out there in the videographic agonistic society to be resistant to those seductions and to frame them critically and to say, look, this argumentative form is itself ideological, I suppose, in the way that she's saying that the uh, techniques, the deployment of reproductive futurism in uh, the sequel to Blade Runner is ideological. So I don't think, in other words, that we should be naturalizing by reference to let's say scholarly protocols that have been derived from uh, you know a couple a century of pro scholarship that we should be naturalizing those standards and protocols in this new environment but one of the things that i talk about in workshop of potential scholarship is how we've come to a point in universities in the institutional contexts where we're forced to think of ourselves as knowledge producers and one of the things that we're Uh, supposed to produce are arguments. What I'm suspicious of here is precisely the fact of the persuasiveness of the argument. It's simply too neat when the theory she's drawing on is, is deliberately messy. You know, there's the Edelman stuff. It's very porous. It's very performative, gestural. It wants to undo the kind of epistemologies that I think actually... Uh, Kathleen might be performing in the video essay. I'm, I think I'm, I'm, I want to make a claim for a form of work that has less status. I think this is a high status work, what she's made. You know, this kind of argumentative, argumentative in the academic sense of, you know, performing an argument, offering its analysis and evidence and conclusions in a persuasive way. Uh, this is a high status form of work and it's the kind of work that is necessary to produce for example for uh, reasons of publication in certain contexts not necessarily in transition but certainly elsewhere and for to be taken seriously by in institutional contexts for purposes of tenure or promotion and so on but there's different forms of work which are much less certain of their own are much less convinced i suppose of the arguments that they wish to make if they wish to make them at all that perf- that Parade their vulnerability, that uh, wish to go beyond precisely that point of being able to be persuasive or to be able to be convinced about one's own position, to go, if you like, beyond the evidence to somewhere a bit more nebulous or nebular. That that is much harder to defend in an institutional context, so it's much lower status in that sense. So what I'm doing here is offering a really, really good example of a particular sort of high-status work that is. Obviously excellent. And trying to say, okay, it's obviously excellent, but I'm not, I don't want to be persuaded by this. I think there's other ways to do work that need to claim their own validity and legitimacy.
1: Earlier in the conversation, we talked about endings and ending with thought and questions and ways to keep the conversation going. So I think, Alan, this is a, a great place to kind of end our conversation um and hopefully we'll get the chance to talk to kathleen sometime down the line on this podcast and we can uh keep it going then so uh but alan thank you so much uh for for joining us today i really appreciate it
2: well thank you both um for such really astute questions and really nice conversation thank you
0: Thank you for listening to the Video Essay Podcast. The Video Essay Podcast is hosted and produced by Will DeGravio. I edited today's episode, Music by Ketza. Learn more at thevideoessay.com. Thanks.